Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Jenny L. Presnell, a librarian of the humanities and social sciences at my university, Miami University of Ohio. She's the author of The Information Literate Historian, a guide to research for history students, of which the third edition was published this year by Oxford University Press. And The Information Literate Historian, or Attempting to Be One, is the subject of our conversation today. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Well, uh, we should start off uh, by we, we've had an archivist on the podcast before, and then we'll have that uh, link to that in the show notes. Um, and uh, I think my experience with librarians is is that many people, and this includes uh, sometimes includes people with tenure, uh, come to the librarian a little too late. Um, is that your experience as well? Oh, well, yes, of course, because if you can start with us early, we can save you a whole lot of agony and angst and, and time, usually. Yeah, you have a very good uh, explanation of what librarians do and how they do it. So let's, could you give that to us? Um, what do you do, What do you do all day other than well, pet the books? <laughs> sure. Um, and in fact, it's one of the things that drew me to be a librarian is that, um, at least for me as a librarian, um, I get to work with faculty and students and all kinds of researchers. And my job is to help them focus their topic, help them figure out words to search for in the databases, because I kind of know how the databases are structured. Um, and, and we're taught to do a, what we call a reference interview. So we negotiate that question with you. A Lots reference interview? You, you, you interview with the person and what they're interested in? Yes. Huh. Um, although somewhat maybe a little different than like what we're doing this morning, but mm -hmm. they'll tell me their topic and I'll say, do you mean this or do you mean that? Um, because most, certainly most students who come to us, um, they have a topic that's worthy of a dissertation because they have no sense of scale. Um, and their professors work with them on this too, but they still, they have, they have no sense of scale sometimes. So yeah, I'm, I ask them questions about what they mean by and who would be in, who would care about this particular topic, which tells us maybe how to look for primary sources? Um, I'd ask them um, sort of how long it has to be the paper or project mm -hmm. has to be, because you know if you have ten books on your topic and it's eight pages, you need to figure out you know what to read because you can't read all ten of them unless maybe you're a graduate student. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of librarians though behind the scene that make our lives easier in terms of um, creating and managing databases and cataloging materials and uh, doing digital humanities kinds of preparation research. So there's a lot of people that are librarians that nobody sees and that makes our job up front easier. Mm -hmm. Could you explain to me the um, the Library of Congress classification system? Is it... Um, uh, old people uh, in middle age and above remember the Dewey decimal system um, were there only were they did there used to be multiple different cataloging systems in the United States and has the Library of Congress has that has that taken over now 
Um, mostly it's been the Dewey Decimal System or the Library of Congress hmm. system. Dewey is numbers, only numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, starts out as a number. The Library of Congress starts out as two or three letters. Mm-hmm. Most public libraries still use the Dewey Decimal System. Most academic libraries use the Library of Congress system. Um, and that's because sometimes when you put a call number on a uh, book, mm-hmm. decimal system, it kind of wraps around the corner. <laughs> so yeah. the Library of Congress system was was supposed to expand um, sort of how you would do numbering because we try not only to uh, assign subject headings in a card catalog, but the Library of Congress system, you should be able to go to the shelf and you should browse books, um, like books in a particular area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's um, meant to be browsable. Mm-hmm. And I still like the Dewey Decimal System, but it really is not, for the size of an academic library, it's been a real thing. Is, there, is the Dewey Decimal System not browsable? I mean, I, they have sections of books, don't they? I mean, according to like? Oh, how, yes. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, they do. Uh, but you're limited to... Um, Gosh, I don't know how many classifications, but uh-huh. the, um, you have access in the Library of Congress to more sets of numbers. Yeah. The um, someone at my, I, I'm talking to you from Charlottesville and someone at Monticello, where I do a lot of re- work and research and just sort of use the library, explained to me that the Library of Congress system is actually based on Jefferson's way that he organized his personal library. Yes. Um, if, if you walk into his rooms at Monticello, you'll see that sort of starting on your left, you'll see the entire span of the current Library of Congress. I mean, the history, the way that history is organized in American history, which I know but would know best, um, from New England down through the south. It sort of marches from north to south just the way that his library does. And that I hadn't thought about it quite in that way. They do. We do. It does. Um, put... Uh, geography together and time periods together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the E classification, which is for um, U.S. history, F is for um, Canada and um, Latin America. Mm-hmm. But um, it does. It starts out sort of by time period, and then at some point um, it becomes regional. And actually uh, some of the F call numbers also do yeah. re- state history it's um, uh it's it's always fun to figure out those um it's kind of such a library nerd thing but it was one of the breakthroughs of my you know student life was to figure out the the way that the library worked like that um to figure out the grain of the library where to just browse because browse and browsing is power um to be able to go and see i don't know five or six books on the stamp act or of the on the uh the spanish war in the netherlands um to be able to go to one place and find those things, once you know that, um, it's something I'm trying to get students to understand. Um, but it takes, it, it kind of, I don't know if it's an epiphany or what, but it is like finding your way through woods. The, the challenge today, though, has become, I love to browse. I found really wonderful gems of um, books, materials, whatever, by browsing. But mm. browse the shelves, you miss all the electronic books, you miss... Um, in Miami's case, we have millions of books in storage. Um, larger yeah. libraries have many more millions than we do. Um, and you can browse by using the online catalog, but it's not quite the same as standing there. And, yeah, and- I'm not sure that – are the. I'm always worried about that. Um, I'm just doing research at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. I realized that I, unless I was using the card catalog, for example, I was missing some things in the way that the computer search was constructed. Um, 
I there's an epiphany I think to the browsing the stacks. I I, I would almost I certainly do the the I find out where I'm going to go on the stacks. I go and I browse, and then I go back and do another electronic search. Yes, I think these these days you can't like rely on one or the other. No, no. Got to do it both ways. So, um, you begin the researcher, the the, the this information literate historian, uh, tr- trying to give a guide to how to do research by talking, asking about good questions. Um, well, that's really important for for me and the way I've taught historical thinking. So how do you think about asking good questions? Why is that so important? Um, You have to ask something that um, I'm going to say can be answerable, although that sort of makes history sound like it's totally factual, Mm -hmm. which is is not the case, at least at at a college level. Um, But you have to be able to ask a question that you can gather information and resources on that's answerable. And that's answerable or discussable in the time and the the space that you have. So, again, students come up with these huge topics, mm-hmm. and you're not completed in a semester. So, or um, maybe a lifetime, some of them. That's right. That's right. Um, so we we need to ask a question that that can be answerable. I think most questions for um, for most historians and undergraduates, those who at least engage in it. Um, are personal. So um, you may have no relationship to medieval Europe because you're living in the 21st century, but you're curious about what medieval women experienced or what certain classes of people experienced in medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. So so it's a personal question, um, and students that can connect to that personal part of the question I think have a better time at um, finding resources because they'll stick with it. It doesn't become boring to them. Yeah. Um, you also have to watch for um, personal, um, not, I shouldn't say bias, but personal perspective. Um, in this day and age, maybe it's called confirmation bias, but you have to make sure that you look at the information that you gather um, in a way that you haven't presupposed what you're going to find. And I think that's also part of asking a good question is to make sure that you ask it open enough so mm-hmm. that you find something that doesn't maybe fit your preconceived notion. You have a nice, um, uh, and I, I can't believe that I never have explained it this way, um, but the distinction between a good question that's a working question or working topic question and a focused question that's actually uh, uh, the beginning of a thesis, where a thesis is the response to a question like this, a focused question, is how I usually teach it to my students. And I think a lot of people start out with that that not-so-focused question. Mm-hmm. Um, we also teach when you come uh, and you look through some of the databases, there are ways to sort of narrow that search to make it into a research question by looking at what's been written. Mm-hmm. So you can have sort of a very broad search that gives you, I don't know, 700 results. Mm-hmm. And you, all of a sudden you start just looking at titles and you figure out how you want to I was um, curious, we, I, I, I do want to ask a question here, which I mean could take us far afield, but how do you recommend that people keep notes these days? Um, I, I have to say that I just uh, recently, um, so exasperated in some ways as I was um, correcting footnotes for a book of mine that I am almost vowed to go back to three by five cards. 
which I, I don't think I've used since high school. Um, I was, you know, an early, I, I have done everything except three by five cards for the last uh, 40, a long time. And, um, but I almost want to go back to them sometimes. And that I think is really hard. That's sort of hard for me in that I'm still a index card person. Are you really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, although I don't do research in the way that you do research. Um, mine is more about technique and um, I don't have to keep track of hundreds of primary sources mm -hmm. um, that I'm integrating into an article. Yeah. Uh, but you know, um, a lot of people use Zotero, and um, I would recommend that students, if they want to use that, there are ways that you can create notes in there. If you want to use that, start on a three-page paper that you don't have very many resources for, so you get the, the feel of it, because it's really different. Um, I'm still a spatial person, which is why my five cards work for me. I have pile A over here and pile B over here. Mm -hmm. I, um, I love Zotero. I've loved Zotero since it came out. I've mm -hmm. evangelized for Zotero. Uh, I would like to say that I think I've changed people's lives with Zotero. Um, it is, uh, it was to discover it back in, I don't know, 04, 05. It was magical. God, it was magical. Uh, the way that it would just sort of suck up the Library of Cong Congress information. You didn't have to type it. It just put it all there and then you could get busy with taking your notes. Um, but I know I'm, uh, there's like a lot of computer programs. I know I'm not using it properly. Um, I think uh, one computer scientist said most of us use our computers. Uh, they're Ferraris, but we're driving around at five miles an hour because there's a kink in the gas line that we don't know how to fix. Um, I think that's so true. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we or we don't know how to change up above third gear. Um, and uh, likewise, I know that I can do more of Zotero. I know I can do more of these programs. I should just take a class or something like that. Um, I increasingly think that we that should be part of our um, undergraduate and certainly graduate um, education is actually learning how to use Microsoft Word properly. Or my favorite writing program right now is Scrivener, which has a good um, note-taking capability that, again, I don't really, I haven't really uncovered um, the right way of using it. And if they want to advertise on this podcast, I'm, I'm cool with it because I love Scrivener as well. I think that... Um the students certainly these days are are much better at manipulating technology um you think i have my doubts about that but go on uh manipulating technology not necessarily finding using technology to find things yeah that's really weird isn't it i mean it, it, at least that struck me as really weird um so they can they can use zotero but they can't find stuff to put in zotero if yeah. that makes sense. you know makes i've seen it happen um, and I, I still, I don't, I, I was expecting something different from a, a digital native generation. It's, uh, I, I don't have a good explanation for it. Do you? Um, we, uh, librarians, we still discuss the fact that a lot of kids, um, I shouldn't say that a lot of students mm. are technologically savvy. So mm -hmm. you can give them something and they can figure out that if you press this button or whatever, you get that. Sure. But they don't know how to use it, nor, nor why, mm -hmm. um, so they can manipulate an index, for instance, looking for um, journal articles. But their results, they get 5,000 results and they sort of think that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have the, um, I guess, the experience, the, the experience but also the, the, the idea that I should be able to make this technology work better. Mm -hmm. 
they, um, they, they, that they put in the problem. So they, they, they might, there might be an assumption that technology is designed to work for them. Um, it's interesting. Maybe, um, maybe Steve Jobs was too successful. <laughs> um, so back in the 90s, no one expected that when you're working with an MS-DOS machine that the technology was going to do everything for you. Um, you had to wrestle into submission. Um, and that maybe that's that's sort of gone in the last uh, 10, 15 years as our user interfaces have gotten so sophisticated. And I think, I think probably so, because there's this idea that everything should operate like Google. And I'm not always a big fan of that, but libraries are striving to have sort of a one search box mm -hmm. thing like Google um, Discovery Services, which I'm sure that um, your library has there. Mm. Uh, but... Um, it's the, the results are sloppy um from google sometimes it works yeah sometimes it works really well all right let's now we are we're far that's okay um what's what's wrong with google why isn't google the answer the one the be all and end all well i think um much like you said before you use the card catalog and then you also use the electronic mm -hmm. uh, catalog there are some things that google does really well and there are some things that it doesn't um it it has this algorithm in it based on um, not only the words that you put in it, but also what you've searched for in the past, where you are situated in the United States, which it knows. Um, so there's some presuppositions there that you as a researcher can't control. Mm -hmm. If you're in Google Scholar, um, where it's drawing its information from, sometimes it's from the website of a, a journal publisher, and sometimes it's from... Uh, a faculty member, your Vita, that's online. Hmm. Um, and they get references that way. Um, in fact, I, I think this is the challenge of the next generation, is trying to figure out an algorithm that truly works as well as, um, say, subject headings. And uh, when you go into an index that someone or has sort of bibliographically controlled, they mm -hmm. pick... Um, hundreds, maybe thousands of journals to index, and they use somewhat standard terms to, to index them for. Uh, much like a hashtag is how we explain it to students, although mm -hmm. it's not quite the same, because there's no control of hashtags. But you can get more targeted results often that way. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, sometimes, Google is like a shotgun approach, um, and you get all this stuff. Sometimes you've got something really strange and difficult to find, and I've gone to Google or Google Scholar, and it finds it quite nicely. Mm -hmm. Not sure that that one is exclusive over the other, um, but Google can't be all. Mm -hmm. No, it can't. It certainly can't be all. And I, I, I assume that things being as they are in this age, that eventually some algorithm will come along and dethrone Google. People find that very odd to imagine. Um, I, I, just out of curiosity, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking you know, for who's working on a search engine to compete with Google. Um, and the idea, well, that's just impossible. But, you know, as you've just said, it's actually very possible. It's, um, it's just a question of figuring out new algorithms to, to find more stuff better. Um, how that would be done, I don't know, but it could be done. So as an example of that, though, mm -hmm. in our we had uh, our first uh, foray into a discovery service, um, which is that one box, and it searches books, journal articles, and everything all together mm -hmm. that you have access to. Um, and that's 
kind of a broad generalization there. That's not 100% accurate. <laughs> but that's what it says. It, it, but anyway, we put, um, I think we put in Gone with the Wind because we thought we'd come up with a novel. Mm-hmm. Came up with a government, the first result was a government report on wind energy and windmills. Okay. Um, and so it's so somebody went in and tweaked the algorithm, and I have no idea how this is done yeah. at our institution, and and sort of fixed that. Hmm. Um, so I that, I do think that's the challenge. We assume that you know we put something in, we get something back, but we just don't know how mm-hmm. it's working, and yeah. we don't know what we're missing. Yeah, and people have a very strange idea that they don't realize the algorithms. There's a human intervention between you and the and the search. It's very um, the people don't really know about the algorithms. Um, it's like imagining the coffee just comes in a cup. Right. Um, directly from the bean. Lots of people working on this all across all sort of phases of uh, library and um, publishing technology, but I think it's a challenge for the mm-hmm. future. Um, let's go back. Let's talk about uh, back to uh, another topic that you cover. Um, footnotes, references, plagiarism, um, how do you teach plagiarism? You know, I, uh, that's a problem because I have 50 minutes to teach a class. Uh-huh. And so I'm probably not, I probably don't teach about plagiarism, although I thought it was important to put in the book because students need to be able to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, I think we work with the, our writing center. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have used um, exercises with students that ask them to play, um summarize um, something uh, to, to take it out of the quote and sort of put it in their own language and footnote that. Um, I also try to talk about, uh, you know, you want, you want your work to be recognized as your work. So, you know, history, uh, your paper is a discourse. It's a discussion with um, other historians. It's uh, including some primary source evidence and you need to be very careful to identify that this is what this historian says and this is what this evidence tells us um, and then this is my conclusion. Mm-hmm. And it makes their argument stronger. But um, I suppose I don't actually teach as much uh, directly because of the time limit. Yeah, I, um, I, um, I have not... There's, I mean, I, there's certain pre-plagiarism um, moves that I have made. Um, one would be uh, the papers are very, very idiosyncratic to the class and what we're studying and what I'm teaching and how we're teaching. And, um, you know, you've seen the sort of workshop paper evaluation uh, that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, it's not going to help if um, someone's not going to be assisted by downloading a paper, buying a paper on the Internet. Um, and using it for that class, the way I teach it. So that's one thing, the structure of it. I also, I mean, in a certain sense, um, people plagiarize. People don't care if it's not their work when the stakes are either really high, um, when you're, say, a best-selling author who really wants to, needs a new bestseller, uh, a, a third um, bestseller. That's, of course, we've seen that all, lots of times. Uh, Stephen Ambrose, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, that there's also the stakes are very low. You don't care about a class. Um, the class means nothing to you. Um, and I'm not blaming the plagiarism on a professor. Um, 
it's still the student's fault, still their theft, but uh, you have to have a, a class which is high enough stakes um, that the student actually wants to perform for you, uh, wants to do their best. And that can't be um, handled in a syllabus. Um, words in the syllabus don't make that happen. That, that comes from the, the teacher themselves. And I, I would I would totally agree. I think um, I think some of the plagiarism is somewhat innocent. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do agree. Yeah. Because they don't understand. It's first time they're um, sort of doing this kind of paper mm -hmm. and lose track of their footnotes. We've all lost track. Of oh my God! Let's, I'm, I I <laughs> I cannot condemn right at this moment. No. no. Yeah. So so I think um, you know in a part I think also that sometimes they spread out stuff on a table. Um, and they've got print over here and they've got electronic over there. And, and so I do think um, we, you as faculty members, we as librarians, if we can teach them to be careful about it, um, they'll be better. Mm -hmm. It, it and, does come down to footnotes and citation uh, and, and why that's important. I, I simply say to them, it's like math class, show your work. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. It's very simple, and they all they all chuckle at that. They've they they all heard that umpteen times, um, and then it it clicks. It's oh, it's the same here. Even for history, you have to show your work. It's because you're building an argument based on yeah, others. Exactly, and we want to see the chain. There's like then we can go into like when you're showing your work in math, you're showing a chain of reasoning. It's exactly the same for us. We're showing a chain of of logic and reasoning. But I do think that's something that um, librarians can reinforce. But because we have um, we don't have a semester contact with students, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is such a thing as an, an embedded librarian. But um, what's that? An embedded librarian mm -hmm. sounds, um, sounds painful. <laughs> it can be fascinating and it can be a heck of a lot of work, but it is interesting. Um, you sort of attend the class and and teach different pieces of the class um, when they need sort of the bibliography piece of it or the evaluation piece of it mm -hmm. um but for the most part we get uh 50 minutes or uh hour and 15 minutes um and we get one shot so we don't build that kind of relationship with a student unless they come visit us which is always really fun if they come to my office mm -hmm. but if we can talk to the faculty member and talk and find out how they're talking about um plagiarism in the class, we can reinforce that so they also hear it again in the context of um, doing their research. Mm -hmm. What um, Speaking of, of references and plagiarism, let's talk about Wikipedia briefly. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ten years ago, I would uh, run around the classroom screaming with my hair on fire, uh, demanding that they never look at Wikipedia. And then some, by 2014, Wikipedia had gotten pretty good mostly by people cutting and pasting things from other books. Um, but still, there's at least there's the level of information is somewhat better on Wikipedia. How do you approach Wikipedia? How do you talk about Wikipedia to, to students? This is interesting because in the beginning, I, I, I realized if I said, don't use Wikipedia, that was like what everybody was going to do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So my original explanation was that Wikipedia was an encyclopedia and for college papers, you don't use an encyclopedia as a source no. like that. I, I, I did that. I, I said that too. We're not going to use World Book or Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And then now what I use it mostly for, and I talk to students for, it's often a great source to find um, 
sources that would be difficult to find otherwise. So somebody, if, if somebody has written in the article that knows a lot about the subject, they'll cite at the bottom mm -hmm. um, online source for a famous person's papers. Or um, they will provide you a list of uh, newspapers that are online for um, a particular country or a particular time period or that sort of thing. And so that will save you hours of trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be careful about the information in there. Um, we try to talk to students about anything online, um, but certainly uh, Wikipedia and websites is, is doing lateral reading. That is, you find it, you've got to verify it somewhere else. Um, so don't, don't spend hours in, in the website or on Wikipedia. Try to verify that information laterally outside of, of that um, well, let's 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 yeah keep on keep on going with that. Let's let's focus on evaluating these sources because that's I think um, Sam Weinberg has said that what um, who is more or less the patron saint of this podcast has said that the uh, thing that historians can best do um, in this era is to teach citizenship by uh, teaching people to buy, uh, teaching people to carefully evaluate what they read. And evaluating sources. So, what are some criteria for evaluation that we can immediately immediately deploy when we're reading something on Wikipedia or anything else? And from a librarian's point of view, we many of us, a lot of us, have advanced degrees, um, mm -hmm. not know the subject in depth. So, we try to approach it as a student who really doesn't know that much um, about a topic, and so they've got this source which sounds good to them. So. Uh, we have sort of a checklist we use. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of moving away from the checklist because I think it's it's a little too um, restrictive. But but you look at who wrote it and, and what authority they have to have written it. Is this a person who has done study in this area? Um, are they a scientist or a faculty member mm -hmm. um, who has some legitimate interest in this? Um, who, what is the audience? So um, is it a travel company that is telling you about the history of um, a region of France to get you to come to that region and buy their trip. Um, and so that that's more of a, I suppose, a, an internet thing you have to be careful about. No, it's not. I don't think it's just the internet thing. So um, what I call this, um, this sort of exercise is sourcing. What's the source? And, you know, first, who's the author? Um, what can we know about their mindset or their mentality? Um, and then the audience, who are they writing for? So, um, for example, if I want to read um, Letters to Young Adventurers to Maryland, uh, I think it's in 1670, um, you, it takes reading between the lines to realize it's being done on behalf of the Calvert family who owns Maryland. Um, it's not a, it is, it is a real estate prospectus in many ways. It's a, it's a boosting Maryland to people who should travel over there as indentured servants. So I don't think it's, it's not just the internet. Um, where we have to look for the figure out who the audience is and the purpose of something, and that's especially true. I should have thought of that as a primary source. You have mm -hmm. to do a primary source because sometimes you use a primary source in your research for a purpose that it was not intended for. Yeah, and right. So to figure out how the intention um, created the primary source. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. is um, the Stanford History Education Group wrote a uh, 
did an, uh, a study and wrote a working paper called Lateral Reading, mm-hmm. Reading Less and Learning More. Um, and they took a group of undergraduates, a group of historians, and um, a group of fact checkers who were professional fact checkers and gave them a series of uh, websites that looked authoritative. And um, what they discovered actually is that you should spend only a certain amount of time with, with the website or the material and that you need to do this lateral reading. You need to go out and figure out um, the source, either the source of it or um, take a look at um, other websites or other books that might influence they used websites. But I think that the theory is good, whether it's a website or whether it's um, a primary source. Yeah. Yeah. I think the um, it's interesting. I, I think that uh, a sign of someone who's been properly trained as a historian is someone asks you, say, uh, what should I read about the Crusades or about pirates? And uh, I think usually they're expecting only one book. Um, yes. But I invariably rattle off three or four now, why do I do that? It's not to show that I know a lot. Um, well, you know, maybe I do about some things, but my uh, is my uh, inclination is to give multiple sources always because one is insufficient. Right, and you just you got to figure out also when you do your research what's left out, mm-hmm. and if you look at a number of different approaches. You might find that one talks about something that another one doesn't. Mm-hmm. And there's just, the, of course, interpretation. You give the excellent example of uh, Daniel Goldhagen versus Christopher Browning. Let's talk about that a little bit um, because this is um, neither of them. Uh, it's not like uh, Weinberg uses the example of the Hitler Museum, which looks very a very authoritative website. Uh, and then when you Google the Hitler Museum address in San Francisco, you discover it's above a delicatessen or something like that. It's some white supremacist nutjob with a computer um, who's created the online Hitler Museum. Um, But in this case, we've got Goldhagen and Browning are both fine scholars and serious scholars. They just have a really fundamental disagreement of interpretation. And I think this also, um, this was a revelation for me when I discovered it. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure how old this has been now. Um, I don't... The controversy was back in the in the late '90s. I remember that's when Goldhagen's book came out in '98, I think '99. Okay. Um, and I re- both of them are good scholars. They mm-hmm. they that um, they use the same, much the same primary sources, the evidence from this one battalion, German battalion. But they they take a look at it through a different, I guess, lens or filter. Um. And I'm simplifying it to say that um, Browning uh, was in Vietnam, and so he looked at it sort of from a soldier's point of view who was ordered to do something. Mm-hmm. Hagen looked at it, um, who had he had had um, relatives in the Holocaust. So he looked at it probably more from a victim point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's a good study in how you can take um, the same evidence and, and how interpretation can affect how you understand that evidence. Um, I can't say, I mean, I'm not the scholar in this area, but you know, I don't think that one is truer than the other because it's not about being true. It's about understanding. Well, I would, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm more sympathetic to uh, one than the other. 
but put um and i have little or no reason to be but those who uh specialize in this area who have discussed this in my presence you know um convinced me in one way but now trying to put things in unbiased perspective as possible i think browning was very and this is browning focuses very much on that hamburg police battalion um Mm-hmm. on the people in it and um, what they did and why they did it. Goldhagen starts there, but then he extrapolates to the wider uh, macrocosm of Germany. Um, so in Browning's case, you've got um, men who are following terrible orders. And Goldhagen then extrapolates to the thesis that Germans were almost were overwhelmingly uh, eliminationist anti-Semites. That's what you quote him, is what I recall. Um, so I think that's a it's not even difference in interpretation. It's what you use your interpretation to do, and sort of where you move your interpretation to. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Much explanation. Well, and that is, um, you know, that's a hugely different. If I was uh, an example, say from the Crusades, would be. Um, Jonathan Riley Smith versus Christopher Tyreman. Um, uh, and and Riley Smith was himself, of course, revising a previous view, but they they take much the same information and they go in, in very in, in altered directions. Um, but they do it for as, as we're saying for the best of, of, of reasons. Um, how do we, you've got a nice thing on page 103 about describing the differences between scholarship and propaganda. Neither Browning nor Goldhagen wrote um, propaganda, but this is looking at uh, the difference between those two things. What are, what are some of those? Can you run through those? Can we discuss those? Uh, we can. And I, this list comes, uh, got a footnote on this, comes from, <laughs> um, which I have loved forever um, from a, a library journal, Journal of Academic Librarianship, and I can give you the site if you want. Sure, please put in the show notes. Um, but I think I wanted to try to get students to understand that um, there's a certain way that scholarship operates, and, and if it doesn't fall in the scholarship column, you need to look and make sure that it's not, has some sort of uh, intention to deceive. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, in terms of, of scholarship, uh, it describes the limits of data, um, whereas propaganda would um, would claim certainty. That is, we know because we have this statistic and it means this. Mm-hmm. And, and scholarship brings in different pieces of data. Um, yeah, and that um, sort of the, the, the template that I, um, sort of the core cognitive skills of historical thinking is, is I would tout would think of them and my colleague Lendl Calder would think of them one of them is awareness of limits which would also be humility um, and that negate that if you if you believe in if you are aware of limits then you cannot make excessive claims of certainty um, it, it removes you from that that's the that's the difference right there between historical scholarship and historical propaganda um Presents, uh, presents accurate description of alternative views. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a sense of this discourse, again, of having many people um, look and discuss as opposed to personally attack somebody who 
you uh, would say doesn't know anything about this. And, and by discourse, I should say, we mean within almost a, a tradition of argument, uh, within a sort of an, enga- an, an ongoing ar- uh, argument. And by argument, I mean <laughs> people uh, giving reasons to one another and trying to persuade one another, too. I think this is hard for an undergraduate to understand. Mm-hmm starting out. Now, maybe by the time they get to a senior or an advanced, you know, honors thesis kind of level, it's different. But I think that they sort of think, well, you just read it and this person said it. And, and so it is. And, and you need to enter a conversation. Yeah. This is my first day class, um, is ends with the Peter Yale, um, quote, uh, history is an argument without end. Um, not because I think they don't understand what I mean, but I'm trying to throw down a marker uh, right at the beginning of the class of what we're going and what the approach is and how history is going to be considered in this class. Um, another in scholarship looks for counterexamples versus suppresses contradictory views. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very hard to do as well. I mean, that's where um, I would say um, many scholars um, fail at that. And it's it's hard to um, it's hard to do sometimes. And I, I guess uh, we can go through the list further, but I think my purpose here was that for students to see that even though they don't intend to create propaganda, mm-hmm. but you can end up on that side pretty easily. Oh yeah, very easily. Well, if you don't really address the manner in which you use your sources and look at your sources. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all where we're living in the age of, well, really disinformation, uh, mm-hmm. as well as misinformation. Um, I have a ambivalent view about this, um, in, 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 in the sense that up until the 1950s, well, we are in a way going back to, uh, the way things have been for most of American history. And, um, and if, if one is in, in, uh, England, uh, one does not, one should not only read the Guardian or only read the Telegraph. Um, it's very helpful to, uh, to pick up both and read through them and see what the headlines are, because both the Guardian has a very pronounced uh, left-wing, uh, left labor view, and the Telegraph has a very pronounced right conservative view, um, and. That's the way newspapers have been the entire time in Britain, and the other ones uh, occupied different spaces along the spectrum. Um, that, that hasn't been the way it has been in uh, the United States. Um, there's been a different sort of uh, creed, journalistic creed. Um, I think that's, that's basically gone now um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but that means that this, these sorts of skills that and uh, that we want to teach of, of reading and thinking are all the more important. And I would so agree with that. Um, in that, I'm not, I don't know in depth the history of um, fake news, which everybody likes to call it fake news. It's not fake news. Everyone's news. everyone's Great. fake news is someone else's news. That's the problem with that. Sort of, it's completely subjective. But. Um, there are journalist, journalism ethics, but we also have the case where you've got the uh, citizen journalist who's on the scene who's videoing the uh, incident with the police or the riot that's happening or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't have sort of the bigger perspective, which we're asking journalists to um, sort of 
report, but also report within context mm-hmm. of, of, um, of a whole incident or a whole um, idea, I guess. And I think, I think we're struggling in that. Um, you got to sell news right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, you have to get people's attention and um, then you get the facts of the story out there and you spend the next two and a half hours because you don't have anything new to talk about sort of going over the same old stuff, maybe getting an expert here who, who has no idea what's going on, but, but will add some expert ideas to it. So it, it or, gets or more likely conjecture, but go on. Yeah. Yes. Um, the other lament I have is that local newspapers are just dying. Mm-hmm. Most cities in the U.S., most, most cities, I guess, I think and, uh, you might know differently, only have one paper yeah i mean uh, who I, I, who has i think only new york has multiple papers now if i'm, if I'm not mistaken does boston no boston doesn't have multiple white papers philadelphia philadelphia doesn't chicago barely has i think they're Which, with yeah some. sometimes in the tribune um but i'm not even sure about that anymore and i live in a little town we lost our newspaper about five years ago because nobody, um, it was too expensive to produce, and they couldn't employ people to do it. And uh, the journalism department has taken up trying to do an online local newspaper, mm-hmm. and I think they're doing reasonably well. But but you miss all of that, and and so I'm getting us off topic here. But that also takes us into um, primary sources for the future aren't the primary sources of the past. And yeah, that's right. It's a struggle to figure out how to teach using primary sources in the past versus, you know, what you might need in another 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, so it, part of the problem is now even not just uh, assessing information, um, but also then trying to find it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> you know, one I thought for some time that local newspapers like the, the Oxford, Ohio, um, would survive because people need the high school football score, um, or they would at least want to see their kids uh, picture in the paper when they were head of their class or something like that. But that even even that wasn't enough. Um, and so where do you where do you get where do you get information now is is a problem which I, I think will be resolved, but I'm uh, but I'm not sure how or when. I hope so because it, it worries me a bit in that. Um... You know, I love to read people's diaries from some time in the past to understand what their lives were like. Um, but now it's Twitter. Mm-hmm. Or it's, um, you know, I used to write letters to friends all the time um, in my younger years. And now we do some email. Um, and I'm sure this was the argument when the phone came into being that everybody was going to talk on the phone and not write letters anymore. But well, they were right. <laughs> I mean, letters, the late 19th century is the, the apex of, of letter writing and, and, and you know, great boon to historians, I'm sure. It's after my period, but that's a great time to study history when you have all those letters flying around and, you know, four times, uh, four deliveries a day or whatever it was. That's true. And and it's easier for a student to deal with a pile of letters, I think, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what to do with some of the electronic stuff. But... It, um. I don't know how we're going to figure this out. We're working. Everybody's working on it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I we basically over our time now. 
um, if you, so let me try to wrap things up a little bit. If you were um, talking to a group of history professors, uh, what would be a couple of things? It could be one, it could be three, that you would want them to get across to their students about taking them to the, to the library or how to use the library? Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I would really like um, professors, faculty members, to think of us more in terms of a partner. Um, everybody has content to cover and they don't want to give up time. But we can really tailor what we do to what you need. Um, it helps us and it helps your students to hear it collectively one time as a group. People will ask questions that other people have, but they wouldn't ask in class. And then, you know, we can do a lot um, individually. But I would like them to mention the library and the librarian, I guess, as a information source. As much as I love books, we're really kind of not about books anymore. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, go on. I'm sorry, I just took a second to cry. Go on. No, too. Um, I struggle because I have to, um, what we call weed, I, we run out of space and I have to figure out what to save and what we can get elsewhere that we don't have to save. Yeah. And this is hard for me as a historian, um, but I'm off topic. Um, that um, students should learn how to use some kind of index. Um, JSTOR is wonderful, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have every journal in the world, and it's not technically an index. It does have some uh, searching features to it, but it's not a tried and true as I understand it. Um, somebody's going to write it and say I'm wrong. <laughs> Subject headings, right? Uh -huh. And there is value in teaching students to use um, an index of some kind. No, I think that's, I, I mean, that I'm chastened by your JSTOR remonstrant. I mean, it's, you're very right. I, I, I lean on JSTOR far too much um, and rather than using an index. And I love JSTOR and sometimes I it is. Love it. Um, so I don't want to say bad things about that. No, um, I, mean, I, my, I don't think I could do scholarship without it these days. Right. Um, nevertheless, um, it's like Google, it's insufficient. Um, if it's the only thing, it's not enough. And maybe a third thing, um, if you talk to your librarian before you make an assignment, um, we can at least tell you that your students can't do that assignment because we don't have those resources. Or um, in, in our knowledge of the past, we worked with somebody else, they did an assignment like this, and this is what happened when the students came to the library. They, you know, this is this is where the failing point was because they didn't understand something. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess I think of librarians almost as ombudsmen. Mm -hmm. I hard time saying that word. Yeah, um, me too. Because I'm I'm in between between the student and the faculty, um, trying to trying to help both of them. Um, and within my organization, I'm trying to represent the student and the faculty for our collections and things that are needed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we can, we can be a good advocate for you. I think of, uh, increasingly of librarians as concierge. Um, ah. yeah. And like when someone lucks out on, um, on Priceline and gets in the four star hotel and there's a concierge. And if you're used to usually staying at a budget and you have no idea what to use those people for, um, that's the way people <laughs> usually tr treat the librarian. It's concierge. It's really nice to have a concierge. I have no idea what to use that person for. Um, and in fact, they can do an amazing amount of things. They can get you the, they can know what uh, restaurant is handicapped accessible uh, and serves a large variety of vegetarian entrees. They know all four of them within a 
eight block radius and would you like a cab or an Uber? Um, and a librarian can do the same thing. People just don't avail themselves of the librarian. And this is true. Even um, our circulation rates are going down. So I'm worried about people even coming in mm-hmm. and coming to study. But I, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, um, that is a word. That's a, that's a whole separate podcast conversation. Um, we have these, um, when I've taught first year experience, um, we have these awkward library visits. Do you know those awkward library visits for like a sort of a class when they come in and the professor's there in the back and the librarian speaking nervously to these undergraduates that don't, how can we make those better? That's a, that's a good idea. That's a good question. And a lot of it is on the librarian's end. Um, because too often we, um, descend into what I call the Carol Merrill of, uh, librarians <laughs> show things. Um, and it's important for students to find the database. Um, so we can show you how to use that database, but it's important to lay some groundwork beforehand about, about your thinking processes. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can, if librarians can be a little more interactive and a little less show and tell, um, what do you mean by that? Well, how would they, how would, how would you be more interactive? So what I often start my classes out with depends on, depends on the needs and, and what level they are, but I'll have them, they usually come with some kind of topic in mind. Um, they probably worked with a professor defining a topic. I have them write the topic on a piece of paper. I have them pass that topic to someone else. Oh. Another student circle keywords in there and ask extra questions because after all the students have been in the class, I haven't been in the class. And then we probably do it a third time to get different perspectives on this. It goes back to the home student, goes back home. Um, and then we take a topic and we work on the board um, and we try to divide it into pieces, into searchable pieces with synonyms underneath mm-hmm. different ideas. And so we're trying to work the topic before we actually go into the database and press the button here mm-hmm. um, so that they're a bit more engaged. Um, it also helps with the faculty member in the back saying, now, and they ask questions, whether they ask questions because um, as a librarian, I haven't mentioned it, or if because they're also curious themselves, it helps the students see that engagement with this, with this the librarian in the classroom and that sort of thing. Yeah, and there's nothing, I mean, this is a very simple, I mean, high school teachers know this better than college professors, unfortunately. Um, if the professor is not engaged, if the professor doesn't show up for that, um, it tells the students, the 19-year-old students fresh out of high school, how important it is, which is not very. Right. Um, so they, there has to be some some evidence of an moral support and buy-in from the faculty member. We have a general rule, although it's we, I don't always enforce it either, is that, that you should come with your class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's key, and it's and shame on a professor who doesn't do that because they're, they're not being a good colleague. Um I, I would also, um, I think that one thing that suggests itself as you've been, as we've been talking is that, uh, for an upper level class, um, one assignment should be, uh, the person does that the student, uh, does a one-on-one with the librarian about their topic before they do anything else. And that could be easily assessed and, and, and checked in cooperation between the professor and the librarian. And I would say yes, most of the time. Although if you have a class of 50 students and I have five classes with 50 students, we run out of time. Yeah, that would be, I'm, I'm thinking more of the 12 person upper level class, but there probably aren't yeah. that many of those left anymore. 
they're shrinking. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, and yeah. what would you, um, what could we say uh, to just people who are trying to do a little research in the library, say on family history or something like that? Um, they should also buy your book and read it and, and learn <laughs> how to do it. No, they, they should, because it, 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 this is a guide to information for people who are interested in studying people in the past, um, which is what history is, um, and change over time. So that describes a lot of different people uh, interested in a lot of different things. Um, what would you want to say to them before they go to, say, the oh no, Library of Virginia or their state library or the big library down the street, wherever that is? Um, I would say... Go to your local library and, and talk with them first about what you might find in different places mm -hmm. so that when that makes your trip more efficient um, and sometimes uh, you need to contact other libraries before you go because there may be restrictions about whether you're allowed in. There may be um, restrictions on the material that you want to look at. The material that you want to look at could be in some storage place that takes two days to get. And if you show up on a Friday, um, You've wasted your trip. That's a that's a real pro tip because I'm not saying that's happened to me, but it's happened to me a lot of times um, when I was young and stupid. Um, but there's there's always there's always a bunker in which they're keeping the extra million volumes. Because we've all run out of space, so <laughs> yeah. it happens to everybody. The yeah. best, even librarians who know better. Um, but I think that if you can do some pre work before you you go to other libraries, especially with genealogy. You can make sure that when you're there, you know, you're more efficient um, with your research. And sometimes it helps to talk to somebody locally. Um, may not be the history librarian. I, I play a lot with genealogy, for instance, mm -hmm. on family. And I've played some with working with faculty members, using uh, census materials and like agricultural censuses to look at, at regions. But um, talk to somebody maybe first before you go, um, or at least email the place you're going to go to and say, what else do I need to know about coming? This is what I'm looking for. My guest today has been Jenny L. Presnell. Uh, she's a librarian at Miami University of Ohio and author of The Information Literate Historian, a guide to research for history students, but also for anyone who's interested in researching history. Jenny, thank you so much for being on Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ronat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.